0: Wait, wait, wait! You heard that I had done the rabbit holes. You didn't listen to my rabbit holes while you were gone. I was
1: on vacation, Sarah. You know, oh they're my still gosh. on my—they're uh, still on my queue. The, those lists, uh, uh, those episodes are.
0: Hey there! Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is August tenth, twenty twenty-one. And I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 5:38. Joining me from Pennsylvania is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Welcome back, Neil.
1: Hey, Sarah. It's good to be back. You know, I, I'm glad that I didn't pick two weeks uh, of any kind of significance or, you know, eventfulness in sports to take off. So, you know.
0: Yeah, no, very quiet yeah. while you were gone. Really nothing mm-hmm. happening. So that that was nice. Good timing on your part. Yeah, like no,
1: it. It. It, was, it was great. But no, I'm I'm happy to be back. Uh, and and happy to just get back into the swing of things. It is as like a sports podcaster. It is interesting to take vacation because you're still like watching sports, consuming them for enjoyment or trying to kind of tell yourself that it's for enjoyment so but it's it's like a weird switch to flip where it's like okay I'm on vacation now still doing a lot of the same like uh, consuming of sports that I was before but it's as a as a civilian
0: yeah no I'm I'm on vacation the next two weeks and so I am hoping to I will I will likely have a similar experience although I'm hoping to like really not pay attention at all and then just have to <laughs> figure it all out when I get back <laughs> yeah and on vacation this week is Jeff Foster so we're uh, we won't have a full complement of hot takedown hosts for a little while which is uh, you know it's okay it's August it's a good time to to take a break everyone needs a break from time to time
1: <laughs> rotating cast in and out it's fine
0: yeah exactly we should uh, talk about the NL East real quick because it is a whole situation. Like the Mets have fallen off, the Phillies are surging, the Braves are weirdly in good shape. What's going on in the NL East, Neil?
1: Yeah, I wish I knew. Uh it is funny because w- when I went on vacation uh and maybe a little bit before that even, it did seem like oh, you know, the Mets are uh have been the team to beat in this division for a little while and yeah, all of a sudden the the Phillies have just gone on this tear. Yeah, the Braves even with Ronald Acuña out. I I think I didn't I dump them for the Phillies in uh our redraft uh which was maybe our last episode before <laughs> before I was out.
0: You dumped the Braves and Jeff dumped the Phillies and, and right. neither and I picked
1: up the Phillies.
0: great. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. a good
1: move. Yeah, so I I guess, you know, I I, I mitigated my losses somewhat in that yeah. way, but it just looks like a three-team race and I'm glad none of us <laughs> I, I one of the teams I dumped was the Nationals, uh, who I uh, drafted originally, and that looked good because they sold, uh, in fact, sold much of their team yeah. uh, at the deadline. So that was good, at least.
0: I feel bad for Mets fans, I know, because although every one of them saw this coming um, and was right. braced for it, so I, I appreciate I appreciate
1: that this is the least surprising development of the season
0: yeah it does seem like that yeah <laughs> on today's show we'll put a bow on the summer olympics with a look back at how our metal tracker performed and how the u.s men's basketball team somehow pulled off the gold then we'll check in on the world of soccer and why Lionel messi is about to find himself in a different part of it and finally we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week The 2020 Tokyo Olympics are now over. The US dominated in total medals won and edged out China in the gold medal count. But the Russian Olympic Committee, or ROC as the Olympics insisted that we call them, surprised with a very strong showing. And Japan did not quite get the usual host nation bump. The reasons for that seem pretty obvious. We did have a number of surprises and quasi-surprises. The U.S. women's soccer team continued their trend of losing at the Olympics after winning the World Cup, though they did bring home the bronze. And the U.S. men's basketball team pulled out the gold despite looking shaky over the early part of the tournament. And despite the very loud criticism coming from certain corners of the internet. On ESPN's first take, Stephen A. Smith proclaimed that he was never one of the doubters.
2: But I had no problem with Draymond or KD, you know, going at critics pointing out how people were counting them out or questioning them. When you win and you achieve the goal, which they did, you deserve to stick out your chest and say to some folks, how dare you doubt us? They've earned it. I got mad love and respect for what they accomplished, and I never doubted that they would because I knew that we were superior. We are superior when it comes to the world of basketball, and we will continue to be superior for decades to come.
0: Neil, do you think the doubters were wildly off base looking at this men's team? And what do you think about Stephen A.'s claims that the U.S. has international basketball locked up for decades to come?
1: Uh, You know, I never want to make predictions about decades to come. I think that's uh, always been proven to be a little uh, rash. But yeah, I I love to see the arc of this team coming from sort of the beginning stages because I don't think that they were that off base, The, the Kendrick Perkins uh, styled, uh, commentators looking at the early returns from the team. It was sort of, I was panicking. I think I even made, uh, maybe we talked about that on, on the show at some point, but yeah, I I felt a little bit scared that this team was, was going to have a repeat of the 2004 debacle, but they really turned it around. I think a lot of that had to do with just how great Kevin Durant played and, you know, it's, it's, It's difficult to say that we take Kevin Durant for granted because he is a constant fixture in our basketball watching lives when when healthy, especially. But I do think that sometimes we take Kevin Durant for granted, like we take for granted how great he is, uh, especially how great he has been on this Olympic basketball stage. And it, it really kind of. Clarified that for us when he did pass Carmelo Anthony as the um, the all time leader in scoring. Kevin Durant has been a huge part of U.S. men's basketball for a long time, and really could have been even a bigger part if he had uh, made the 2008 roster. He was one of the last players, you know, who didn't make the team, who was in the last stage of cuts in 2008 for the Redeem Team. Uh, but even with that being true, he he has been like just a a huge part of this team. uh, And it's nice to see him finally getting kind of recognized as like, oh, yeah, you can make a really strong case that he's the best men's Olympic uh, US player ever.
0: Yeah, it was so fun watching him. I mean, you know, we got to watch some pretty amazing performances from him in the NBA playoffs this year. And then getting to watch him in the olympics to just take over games like that it was like oh yeah this is fun it was really it was it felt nice to be able to see it again after you know after he got bounced from the playoffs um earlier than some people were expecting it was fun to get to see him just take over and really keep that team afloat when it wasn't playing at its best which it was i mean It's not like the doubters were completely wrong. Like they were, they did look bad. No,
1: they they looked bad. Big stretches. Yeah. Yeah. And it's probably just a testament to them not really playing that much together. I've always sort of thought that the cohesion of uh, these U.S. men's teams is such an underrated factor. And when you have players who literally were playing in the NBA finals just, you know, a week earlier or whatever, and then they have to turn around and play in the the Olympics and, and they weren't necessarily with the team during the lead up, it's understandable that there were sort of issues with trying to kind of make that team gel together and that they would get better as the tournament went on.
0: Yeah. And people want to blame that on like the egos that they like can't, can't work together. It's like, no basketball is actually, it, it's hard. It's a team sport. You have to actually, you have to get to know your teammates. You have to get to know their tendencies. You have to be able to like work out that game plan. Cause it is different. It's a, sl- it's a different style of play in the international game, anyway. Plus, then it's different than yeah, the the basketball. You know, Devin Booker was playing literally two days before he had to get to to Tokyo. The timing on that was always going to be kind of tricky. And we just sort of assume, well, it's it's American basketball. Like, obviously, they're going to win. Like, no, it's not. It's not obvious. You can't just like show up and win. You do have to to practice and 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 work out those kinks. And then once they did that, they looked substantially better. I mean, some of those games were still closer than you might've wanted them to be or expected them to be. But when they were firing on all cylinders, man, they looked quite good.
1: And that's something, you know, this idea of not blowing out teams and especially in like the um, knockout stages of the tournament that uh, somebody had asked Greg Popovich a question about that. And he kind of got upset at one of the press conferences and I think that we still have this mentality, maybe just particularly as American fans of a particular generation and, and age group, that, yeah, it's going to be like the first few tournaments that uh, allowed NBA players to play, like the Dream Team and Dream Team 2, which really were – it just was a series of blowouts. It was It was not necessarily close, and it's like that – is a totally unrealistic expectation. If that's the comparison point that uh, we're, we're going to hold these guys to, then yeah, they're going to fall short. But the rest of the world has gotten a lot better. And that's just the reality of the the global game of basketball now. And that's a good thing. We should be happy about that uh, because it has been correlated with seeing so many great international players in the NBA. Uh, Luka Doncic is a great example. You know, yeah. Slovenia, um, they, they only lost by one point in the semifinals, and he he played out of his mind the entire tournament, uh, and he's going to be a force to be reckoned with in the Olympics for a long time, and And that's just one example out of many. You know, France was a much better team than, um, you know, if, if, if you had looked at their roster 10, 20 years ago, the, the thing they were most known for was uh, Vince Carter dunking on Frederick Weiss yeah. uh, in, the, in the 2000 Olympics, and now they were, not only they beat the U.S. early in the tournament, but they were competitive with with the US down to the to the end in the gold medal game. And so, you know, I think that that speaks volumes about it, it's, it's not just them, it's every country seems to be in, in a much higher level of play than than they were um, just a decade or two ago.
0: I mean, anyone who follows the NBA should know that. Like, this yeah. should not be a surprise, and we shouldn't keep thinking. You know, yes, the U.S. team has a, a wealth of talent, obviously, but we know how good the international game is. I mean, no one should be surprised at this point that, like, Rudy Gobert is good. Like, come on, guys. Right. Like We we know this. We know that these teams are really coming together. You should know the names on those international teams. I mean, you. and if you're an NBA fan, you obviously do. So it did feel like a little bit of that, like, extreme criticism early on of the US team was from people who maybe don't who don't pay attention as much in general and don't understand the international game but also people who were just wanting to be critical and like didn't really were were just wanting to yell about you know yell at Kevin Durant basically which is a silly thing to do
1: Yeah, save that for Twitter, and then he can respond with (laughs) one of his dozens of sock puppets.
0: Yeah, exactly. No, yeah, save that for Twitter and have him roast you in a (laughs) multi-part thread. Um, That will make you feel bad about your life. Well, let's talk about the games as as a whole. What do we make of Team USA's performance and underperformance, according to our expected medals tracker? The U.S. won 16 fewer medals than we were expecting them to do
1: yeah it's it's tough because uh, some people kind of pointed out rightly about our metal tracker that oh you know it's uh, it was too high on the US and it didn't take into account the factors the particular factors to this um, to these games and I I think if anything we maybe didn't trumpet loudly enough that the tracker was, not intended to be as robust a projection or forecast as something like our election models or even our NBA <laughs> models or you know the other ones in in um, that we do for the major pro sports. Uh, this was really just saying okay, based on their uh, each country's performance over the past few Olympic cycles here's how the pace that they've tended to, to perform at in, in various sports and what we might expect if they continue that pace um, in the future. And so... In some ways, uh, it it does portray the U.S. as playing below that pace as a whole, and I think especially you could look at the men's athletes uh, and and compare their performance to past games and sort of see that yeah they they fell short, uh, perhaps somewhat substantially uh, this year. Uh, the the women did better, and that's been a trend for the the women's Olympic teams for a while on the U.S. side. Is that we have really been carried by uh, our women's teams and and. Ath- and Individual athletes, uh, and that was never more the case, I think, than this year, right?
0: Yeah, the women had the highest participation, like the highest number, pure number of female American athletes ever, and the highest, you know, the highest number of medals they were have surpassed the men now three Olympics in a row. Um, so that's it's definitely it's definitely a trend. And, you know, I should say it's funny that like our tracker was really based on pace, like where the a country should be at this point in the games based on these historical averages. But what was funny was the first day the U.S. didn't win any medals and there were many panicked articles out there about how this is the first time that they had ever, I think, not won a medal on the first day of the, of the summer games and that, that people were freaking out about that. And it's like, well, you know, yes, they would have, they could have won like one, but they're still on pace for a lot of them. And, and as it turns out, you know, yes, the U S did have fewer medals than it won in Rio, but only by eight, you know, we're talking over a hundred medals. That's, you know, it's not a huge difference. The total that they won this year, the thir- the 113 that they won this year, was more than any other Olympics except for 1984, which was held in Russia and didn't, or held in LA, sorry, and didn't have Russia, and in 1904, which was held in St. Louis. Also, it was really early in the games; it was the first games not in Europe like nobody could get there. And the US had 526 of the 647 total competitors. So the medal count was a little inflated in that 1904 St. Louis games. So really, this is still like this, the second highest total in a normal games for the US ever behind Rio. So it's not like it's a it was a bad showing. It was just like, not as dominant as we as we would have wanted or would have would have expected I guess
1: yeah we are we are neutral observers yeah, We, yeah, yeah, we are not jingoistic you know <laughs> nationalistic uh, metal crazed uh, ghouls here but but anyway yeah you know and I think it's also worth pointing out that yeah there were more medals given out this year uh, compared with Rio also I mean there were 1080 medals uh, as compared with 973 and we've had some metal inflation over the years for instance, in that 1984 Olympics, 688 medals were handed out. So it, it, that's another thing of sort of making these medal comparisons just based on raw totals. Our tracker was sort of looking at the share of medals uh, that that each country had accumulated in each sport over the past three cycles. So that's a little bit of a different thing too, as it tried to take into account that inflation of medals. And that's sort of where that expectation came from as well, is this idea that as more medals will are awarded, the US and other countries will maintain some of their share of that. Uh, but also like I want to dig into the fact that the the two countries that were really off on, or at least would be off if this were intended to be an accurate right. forecast, which it wasn't, uh, were the ROC, the the, the Russian uh, athletes in in disguise, and then the <laughs> uh, and then Japan. And I do think that those stem from two decisions that I made. And we can sort of talk about the the wisdom of those decisions. But essentially, for Japan, we put in the usual host country bounce, because there is a long history of the host country getting this, you know, boost in, in their medals, especially their golds in the year that they host relative to the surrounding Olympics. And that just wasn't quite the case for Japan, uh, at least when we baked in that that bounce, that was part of why they appeared to fall short of expectations. And I think that you could question the wisdom of putting that in this year when there were no fans allowed and, and all the other various factors that sort of played into these games, them being delayed, the public opposition in Japan to even holding them uh And whether or not those factors are the things that make up the the usual host country bounce, and you know how many of those factors were really working against that this year that's a fair thing to to ask uh and certainly hindsight is twenty twenty there and then for the Russians. We docked them because of the doping scandal, not just because they had fewer, you know, fewer athletes participating than in previous games, uh, and, and some of them were suspended based on specifically their participation in the doping scandal. But this idea that if you do have that widespread doping scandal in place, then who knows how much of your previous performance, how much of that was influenced by the doping. And I think maybe we can question, like, it's a little like the Houston Astros this year, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they did so well that now we have to reframe our assumptions about previous years. So if you thought that the Russians were boosted by the doping and then now they presumably weren't engaging in it, although who knows, right. uh, and, and they did so well, then maybe it's sort of like, well, should we really kind of mentally be downgrading their previous performances also? Maybe it should ask us how much the doping really helped
0: well and, and you know there's so much about that that we don't know and
1: and we'll never know
0: and we'll never know and yeah. and uh, you know the the participants in olympics cha- there's so much turnover from olympiad to olympiad in 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 many of these sports and we don't know what was going on with any of these athletes i did think it was it was sort of funny you so you had you had given them a penalty in our methodology of 25 percent as it turns out russia won 71 medals 18 more than we had expected or roughly 25 (laughs) percent
1: so (laughs) So, yeah if there was no uh, penalty at all they would have exactly met their expectations
0: exactly and you know and that did that did affect a little bit the the u.s count some of those medals that that we were expecting the u.s to win we would have maybe expected Russia to win if we had not given them that, that penalty. So, I mean, some of this was all... I mean, this was meant to be a fun thing. We we, we explained our methodology, but we weren't, like... Some of this was just guesswork. There wasn't, like, a lot of... How, how could we have studied this? Of You know, what, what we would have expected from a widespread doping scandal like this um, that also then maybe didn't actually mean anything. <laughs>
1: and in general, an Olympics being held a year after they should have been in a yeah. pandemic, you yeah. know, there's a lot of factors that go into it. So yeah, I, I sorta of saw it as like a general kind of rule of thumb of how how well each country tends to do and how well they do in events that have awarded medals versus ones that have not yet awarded medals I think right. it was useful for that during the Olympics and I checked it even while I was on vacation but at the same time it's like eh, you, you shouldn't view it as like oh this is a forecast right. and I would love to do a forecast in the in the future that was you know more robust and took more things into account in the early stages as we we're talking about it we were thinking about can we use betting odds for the various events and sort of use that? Uh, and, and we decided not to do that just because that wasn't really available for all of the events, especially in these particular Olympics. I think the challenge was just figuring out, A, were they actually even going to happen? And B, you know, when was everything happening? Who was participating? Who was sort of locked into um, the, the different events? Who had qualified? and then just trying to kind of build something off of that. So the chaotic nature of the of the Olympic lead up I think also made simpler expectation models better at least in terms of just being able to manage them.
0: Yeah, and I also, you know, there are so many Olympic events that modeling in each one is not really possible. There's just there's so there would be so many models to do that is that is kind of hard to get at. You know, we had talked about looking at world championship data, other things instead of just, you know, that once every four-year Olympics. That data is not really available in one, at least not in one place. They're scattered all over the place if it exists at all. And that, that makes it a lot harder. You know, we want all of our <laughs> data to be like... We, we think, you know, this exists, this should be out there, this happened, so we should be able to access it. But that's not how the world of data works, unfortunately.
1: Well, and it does give you a perspective of just how spoiled we are in some of the sports where we do have really yeah. good data that we can actually make forecasts that have, you know, more of a predictive quality to them uh, is you know, working with baseball and working with basketball and all of these sports, it does kind of make you spoiled when you get to um, an event like the Olympics where there isn't as much. And I should say also we've, uh, you know, you and I talked with a guy that works for the U.S. Olympic team that does actually, they do some internal modeling where they do try to kind of dig uh, much deeper than we did into it and kind of come up with their own forecasting And that is sort of a process that they've started to undertake. So I know that the people that are actually running the teams do this, uh, but they also have a lot more time and staff and energy and all of that to devote to it. It, it, It's kind of their job to do. So, uh, you know, I I would love to also peek under the hood at what, um, what, what some of the Olympic teams are doing. Of course, the odds of them letting me do that are low. Uh, and you don't need a model uh, to to predict that fact,
0: yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, well, luckily, we have another Olympics, you know, in six months in so, six
1: months. <laughs> Can have, you believe it?
0: And we have uh, yeah, we we could turn around and do this again so soon. <laughs>
1: And I'm excited because I've gone on record before as saying I like the Winter Olympics better than the Summer Olympics, uh, which is certainly not in the majority of uh, opinions. (laughs) Uh, But I I just tend to like the, the winter sports as a whole, like a higher percentage of the winter sports make me. You know, excited or appeal to me as a sports fan somehow than the the summer sports.
0: Well, we'll just you know, it's time that we resurrect our all curling podcast. So exactly, uh, we, case uh, in point. <laughs> yeah, we'll we have we have six months to get that ready. Um, all right, well, that is a wrap on these Olympics. Um, I hope you all enjoyed them. I sure did. They were so much fun to to just kind of get lost in for for a couple weeks. Let's take a break, and in a moment, we'll be back to talk about soccer. Even if you are only casually aware of European soccer, you probably know that, you know, Messi is kind of a big deal. You also probably know that for his entire career, he has played only for Barcelona. But that is about to change. Messi is abruptly departing Barca for the biggest club in France, Paris Saint-Germain. On ESPN's Gavin Jules podcast, Julian Loren was stunned by the news, even as a PSG fan. And I don't think I don't think they still believe it. I don't think the whole world can believe it. Yeah. It's only when he will sign the contract, maybe on Tuesday, bottom of the paper the, the sheets of paper yeah. holding the shirt that then we will really believe it. But it's incredible for Ligue 1. it's incredible for PSG. Not yeah. long ago, I tried to explain to my children that 13 years ago they almost went down to the second division with rubbish
1: players mm. that you even you who've been in the game for so long, <laughs> you would never heard of. And, and yet, 13 years on, to have a front three of Neymar, and Mbappe mm. and Messi,
0: arguably, I had a message from Nader Manu, our, our colleague, yesterday, saying, this is incredible, do you think this could be the best front three ever? And I said, it will depend how they click, yeah. how they complement each other, but technically it could be, yeah. and I'm just like, wow. So to help us make sense of Messi leaving La Liga, we have called our soccer ringer up out of the virtual control booth, Tony Chow. Hey, Tony. How's it going?
2: Hello. How are you doing? Glad, glad to make my uh, annual appearance on uh, Hot Takedown. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know. I know. Well, this we had like, you know, breaking news and not just like, Tony, please come talk to us about the English Premier League. Right, right. <laughs> Although we have
1: asked that question before and and uh, you've always sort of been like, oh, I'm busy. You know, this, that, <laughs> and the other. We're like, you're not busy today. You got to talk about yeah, Messi. Messi Messi's is, a big deal. is Messi
2: deserves it. the walk around the virtual control booth.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So let's just start with the disclaimer. You are a, a PSG fan. No, no,
2: no, no, no. no. I wouldn't call myself a okay. PSG. So for every league, I like to pick a team to follow just to stay interested in the league. So for Ligue 1, I do follow PSG. I'm not a PSG fan. I'm as much a PSG fan as I am a, a fan of the, the 12 other clubs I follow. You know,
0: <laughs> I mean, but PSG is one yes, of the PSG, 12 clubs. PSG is one of the I mean, 12
2: clubs because they, they have really good soccer kits.
0: So that's our <laughs> disclaimer. Good kits. Um, Tony's yeah. a fan. All right.
2: Tony,
1: are you wearing are you wearing that jersey right now?
2: No, no, no. I'm wearing a U.S. Women's National Team T-shirt.
1: Okay, nice. all right. Yeah. That's that's good for full disclosure. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to ask. Uh, yeah, just for me as like a super casual uh, soccer fan, uh, especially of sort of like the the world outside the Premier League. Uh, could could you uh, explain to me how big of a deal this is and sort of rate it in like. LeBron units. So, like, basically, is this like LeBron going to the Heat? LeBron going back to the Cavs? LeBron going to the Lakers? I, I need to kind of have it explained to me in LeBron terms. I think.
2: So, <laughs> so to answer the first question, it is a very big deal. I mean, it's it's Messi in Barcelona. It's Barcelona and Messi. You kind of always assume that those two things go together. Your LeBron example, I, I actually thought it s- seemed more like um, seeing Tom Brady in a Buccaneers jersey was really weird. Oh, and like. I think that is probably an easier comparison. Like Tom Brady and the Patriots seem just so cohesive and together as like one unit. And it was weird to see him in a Buccaneers jersey. I think that's the same. It's weird. It's weird to see like Dwyane Wade in a Cavs jersey. It's weird to these players. Like you always assume Messi's going to be, you know, like a Dirk or a Tim Duncan, a one team, one player person. And it just didn't happen. So, yeah, and it is a very big deal.
0: So, like, we we'll talk a little bit about about what happened with with Barca but for PSG to and for Messi like is this the right move for Messi is PSG the right place for Messi i mean you know there was a lot of talk about man city you know and and actually getting him to the premier league it feels like that had been talked about you know every year but is is this a good fit for him
2: yeah it feels like every season there are contract talks there's always the Discussion about, is this the year of Messi's going to go to the English Premier League? I think the Man City conversation died the moment they signed Jack Grealish for $100 million, I think it was. And they just, PSG is one of the few clubs that would have the money to make this happen. Is it a good move? I mean, on paper, they seem just ridiculous now. So I'm sure it's a good move. From PSG standpoint, from a soccer standpoint for PSG, it's a great move. But from like a business standpoint, it's an amazing move. It's The contract is what, $25 million a year? There's like an add-on sign-on fee of $25 million, but $25 million a year for two years. I think from the this report from The Athletic, uh, they said that PSG had calculated internally that the commercial benefit of recruiting Messi will mean that their investment pays for itself. And it's like, not only will it pay for itself because you're only paying him $25 million a year, just on jersey sales, on ticket sales, on everything, it'll pay for itself in like three games this season, you're basically getting Messi for free. Wow. Which
0: is nice. <laughs> yeah, that is nice.
1: So then how, how did this actually come to happen? Because it seemed like Barca didn't want him to leave. Like, what were what what mechanisms uh, made this the year that this actually did happen after all these other rumors kind of didn't happen over the years?
2: So I'm not an expert in the La Liga financial salary cap, but from my understanding, the reason why it happened is just because Barcelona couldn't make the money work. So for La Liga, they have these economic controls that basically outlines what each club can spend on players, physio, coaches. It's different for each club. It's based on the profits and losses of the club, the, the debts that the club has. They just couldn't make the numbers work. And the weird thing is, like you said, nobody expected this to happen because they had an agreement already made between club and player Messi and Barcelona to renew the contract and extend his contract. And I'm thinking what happened there was that they thought La Liga maybe would soften the rules because it's messy and kind of like, you know, finagle the numbers a little bit to make it work because they'll never let a player like Messi leave the league. And I guess they, that just didn't happen. So they just couldn't make the numbers work.
0: I'm still surprised that it didn't happen. As recently as, you know, like Sunday or Saturday, maybe, I, I thought this was all a little bit of a ploy to force La Liga's hand and raise that that cap for Barcelona that it did actually happen is still kind of st- stunning to me. I I'm just, I'm still really surprised that La Liga made this happen. Now, n- not that it's La Liga's fault. Barcelona is in trouble financially and has been for a while and is, I mean, they have all kinds of problems, but it did seem like I would have expected them to do everything they could to keep, to keep messy, both Barcelona and La Liga.
2: Right. And it's just, I honestly still won't believe it until maybe he plays a game. Like, I, I, I still won't until even the jersey reveal. Uh, I, I'm still not going to believe it. I'm, I'm not going to believe it until he like scores a goal for PSG. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I did. I wanted to ask about one one part of, of the take. Um, Jules said that Neymar and Mbappe and Messi could be at least on paper, the best front three ever. Does that does that sound right to you? Do you think that's true?
2: I mean, on paper, it's it's tough to think of a scarier front three in soccer now. Like the only the only comparison I can think of is probably with Messi and Neymar in Barcelona with Luis Suarez. the the MSN trio were great um, in Barcelona. I think they played three seasons together, scored over three hundred goals together. Uh, that was like a prolific, prolific, and probably the best trio of, of all time this on paper you're getting messy a little bit past his prime you're getting neymar coming off of some injuries but you have mbappe like just getting to his prime this is it's it's on paper yeah it is i I would definitely agree it's it's the scariest front three I, i've seen in a while i guess we got i guess we have to think of a new uh, uh acronym wait would, what would this be it would be uh, eminem, eminem yeah eminem eminem works yeah, M- M- yeah. M- yeah. M- yeah.
1: Uh do soccer super teams tend to to work when they've happened in the past? Like I know sometimes NBA super teams have you know a great track record in some cases but others where they flamed out spectacularly. What's the track record for super teams like this in soccer?
2: Well the the trio like the MSN trio they 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 won everything. They won they won the treble. They won they were very very successful. Um you could almost argue that PSG had some sort of super team even with just Neymar and Mbappe. And they really couldn't get over the hump. Does a 32-33-year-old Messi get them past that hump and get the Champions League trophy? Potentially, because Messi's game doesn't really doesn't really rely on like speed or anything. It's like ball control, technique, intelligence, all these things that kind of get better with age. So as long as he's healthy, you're still gonna get Messi the messy that everybody knows. So I would expect this super... I'm not sure every super team works, but this super team, if it doesn't work, Pochettino is going to have some big questions to to answer. Like, he has to win everything, basically.
0: Yeah, well, you know, as a fan of one of his recently coached teams, I uh, I, I, I don't know, I don't know. (laughs)
2: We'll we'll (laughs) see. Does he have it? Yeah. Okay,
0: so then, do you think that this will get people paying more attention to... League One. First of all, I'm going to need to pronounce it correctly and not just call it League 1 like I uh, like I wanted to. Wait, that's to. not
2: how it's pronounced. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> League One. League, League, uh. uh.
0: League uh League
1: okay. uh. Yeah.
0: Or or is the Premier League still still what is going to command most attention?
2: I mean in America in the US it's hard to beat the Premier League the Liga is broadcasted on BN Sports, I think. So I guess BN Sports could see a rise in subscription numbers because Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe is definitely must watch soccer, even if they're playing in the quote unquote Farmers League that Liga is sometimes called. I don't agree at all. I actually love Liga but this does make it much must watch television i would say potentially this makes champions league even more like exciting because you expect psg to make like a deep run in in the champions league but it's hard to overtake like the dominance of the english premier league
1: yeah 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 and that starts it
0: does this week yeah it starts this yeah. week which is wild what, uh, what what exciting things are you guys uh, looking forward to as premier league gets going
2: well f- I mean, for this week, I guess the matchup is the Man City-Tottenham Hotspurs matchup on Sunday. What a what a big way to start the season!
0: What a way to start the season!
2: <laughs> there, there was all that talk of like, is Harry Kane leaving? Is Harry like, potentially Harry Kane could have been playing as a Man City player this Sunday against his former team, but I don't think that's uh, going to happen now. Uh, but I think that's probably the big one this week.
0: Yeah, that'll be super exciting to see them start with us. Five nil uh loss no 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 we'll we'll go in we'll go in optimistic and hey, hey <laughs> if,
2: if you were if you had to play uh man city you would want them in the first week because you know it's a fresh fresh slate yeah. anything could happen
0: I think that's right. I did like the, There was a like fake, uh, fake derby over the weekend with Arsenal and Spurs playing in the last exhibition game, which I think is a bad idea. Like you got to save that for the regular season. You gotta, you can't have these friendlies between these teams that hate each other. That was that was. But weird. Spurs
2: won. Sun scored one zero.
0: I mean, who? Yes, they they won a game that doesn't count. Yay! It, 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 it bodes
2: well for the future you know like the the knicks always do well in summer league and it always bodes well for, for, the, for the season right <laughs> oh
0: see i wasn't sure if this you were first joking that before was true. And now i understand that you were in fact <laughs> thanks for that that metaphor all right well there's a lot of soccer to be played this fall uh very exciting to see what uh what messi ends up doing and exciting to see how the premier league shakes out as well uh, we will take a break for now and we'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. What do you have for us, Neil?
1: Yes, I, I heard that uh, you were tasked with doing rabbit holes uh, while I was away, so I wanted to take some of that pressure off of you uh, and, and return to the rabbit hole uh, driver's seat.
0: Wait, wait, wait! You heard that I had done the rabbit holes. You didn't listen to my rabbit holes while you were gone. I was
1: on vacation, Sarah. You know, oh they're still on my. Uh, they're Rude. still in my queue. The, those right. lists, uh, uh, those episodes are. So sure. anyway, <laughs> yeah, I really kind of told them myself just A then. (laughs) That I didn't listen to the show while I was out. But um, I would encourage everyone out there, though, to listen and like and subscribe to the show. Uh, Anyway, uh, so uh, one thing jumped out to me, you know, I'm always on the lookout for weird numbers, uh, strange occurrences for these rabbit hole segments, and on Saturday, we were given one uh, by none other than Brock Holt uh, of the Texas Rangers. He came into a game against the Oakland A's uh, in the bottom of the eighth inning uh, and pitched. Brock Holt is not a pitcher, it should be noted, and in fact... Some of his pitches were so outside the realm of what you would expect from a pitcher that you could tell that he wasn't a pitcher. So, uh, in in that inning, he produced the slowest pitch uh, of the Statcast Plus, Pitch FX, whatever you want to call it, going back to 2008 era, uh, and then broke his own record for slowest pitch multiple times, culminating in. A pitch that went 30.4 miles per hour, as tracked by Statcast. Uh, it was an EFAS pitch. It was such an efus pitch, in fact, that uh, and and so, uh, min- many of these pitches can be characterized this way too. That on the broadcast camera, the ball went out of the frame uh, and then came back down and landed. Uh, and some of them were. One of them was a called strike. I'll, I'll say that he he threw a 31.1 mile per hour pitch that was called as a strike. He also threw, so he threw the 30.4, he threw one that was thirty-two point six miles per hour. That was actually an out. He got an out on it. Uh, and then he threw a thirty-two point seven mile per hour ball, a thirty-three point six mile per hour ball, and that was that was the the extent of his thirty mile per hour pitches. He also threw some in the seventies. So these were change ups that he he really kind of pitched backward in that inning. You know, he used his change up to set up his fastball, which was like seventy nine miles per hour. But uh, it it really just had me thinking about this list of the slowest pitches and where we are right now in this era of position players pitching, where we had noted, I believe, earlier in the season that more position players were pitching in these garbage innings, you know, sopping up these innings of work uh, in 2021 than they had before. And really, each successive season in recent years saw a greater share of innings being pitched by position players uh, than, than the year before uh, and just setting new records for the share of innings pitched by position players. And we're seeing this as, you know, analytically minded front offices are deciding that they don't want to risk injury from real pitchers in games in which the win probability would suggest that it's almost certainly going to be a loss. So why throw good arms after bad results basically? And so why not just throw a position player out there But as a result of that, we're also seeing the rise of the super duper slow pitch (laughs) <laughs> essentially. <laughs> so if you filter out, and, and at first I didn't do this when I downloaded the stats from Baseball Savant, and I was looking at like why is Max Scherzer showing up with uh, you know, these slow pitches and, and all of this? It's like, yeah, they were intentional walk pitches back when that was a thing <laughs> that you had to do uh, before they made that automatic, which I d- don't agree with either on that rule. I, I liked the intentional balls, but that's another hill to die on later. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, once you filter those out, you really see this pattern of increasing slow pitches, uh, specifically pitches that are less than 50 miles per hour, uh, is how I was kind of defining it. So in the years leading up to 2017. You saw uh, each year, this is tracked by StatCast for the years since 2014 and then PitchFX before that, an average of 4.1 pitches per season that were clocked at below 50 miles per hour dating back to 2008. In 2017, you saw 11 pitches under 50 miles per hour. In 2018, you saw only eight, so it was sort of went back in the opposite direction of of the trend. Uh, And in 2019, there were no pitches clocked at at that level in the Baseball Savant data. But then in 2020, that was really when we started seeing the explosion of this. 19 pitches were clocked at uh, below 50 miles per hour. And then so far, according to Baseball Savant StatCast data, In 2021. So again, 2020 was a shortened season and it already was having double the number of super duper slow pitches that we had seen in in previous years. And then this year that has kind of continued. We're not even done with the season yet. And we've seen 79 total pitches of below 50 miles per hour this year, including of the pitches in the sample that were below 40, so there, there are eleven in there uh, uh, since two thousand eight that were below forty. All but two have come in twenty twenty one, and the other two happened in twenty twenty. And get uh, fun fact: they were both by Brock Holt uh, in a game <laughs> against the Phillies on September twenty third, twenty twenty. He threw a thirty eight point one mile per hour pitch, which was the pre twenty twenty one record for slowest pitch, at least in in the pitch tracking era. Jonathan Aruz, th- another position player asked to pitch, he on August 6th had thrown a 36.3 mile per hour pitch. So that was just a day before Brock Holt. And then Brock Holt comes in and says, "Hold my beer! <laughs> I can throw them slower than 35." And in fact, challenge throwing one at 30 miles per hour or slower potentially. So we're seeing this arms race—no pun intended—to of these position players throwing these E ephi. I don't know what the plural <laughs> of ephases is.
0: The ephi, yeah. Let's do that.
1: These <laughs> these 30 mile per hour ephi that luckily, so Brock Holt in that appearance um, on Saturday, he luckily got out of the inning. He did not really yield any damage on it because... Uh, He was able to get the first out was just a chopper that, uh, you know, these guys overswing at these pitches because they're Mm -hmm. like basically softballs coming in and they're like, oh, I'm going to crush this thing. Uh, (laughs) And then they sort of if they're off by a little bit, they kind of top it or whatever. And that's how he got the first out. And it was hit back to the back to him on the mound. Then the second one, Matt Chapman actually sort of uh, waited on it, pulled back his hands and stayed inside of it and hit it out into the gap, a classic kind of softball type of um, hit that you see in like the celebrity softball game or whatever but then he got a little too greedy and he was trying to turn the turn it from a single into a double and he got thrown out going for second oh no. for the second out of the <laughs> inning and then Tony Kemp absolutely unloaded on one out to right field but it was caught with a leaping grab at the wall, not just at the track but at the wall, almost was a home run uh, and so that was how Brock Holt with his super duper slow pitches was able to actually record a scoreless inning but he got very lucky and as uh, (laughs) that's an example of how really without the bad base running by Matt Chapman and then just a little bit of extra you know wind at the tail of the one from Tony Kemp it could have been a two-run home run that he gave up uh instead of a scoreless uh inning but so I kind of expect us to see more of this you know we're just Brock Holt Alone being asked to pitch seems to be correlated with more super duper slow pitches than in the previous history of pitch tracking uh, in Major League Baseball. But yeah, we're seeing you know like your one of your favorites, Williams Estadio yes. in, in June, he threw a 41.3 mile per hour pitch. <laughs> Danny Mendick has thrown a few 41. Uh, Jarrell Cotton threw a 41 mile per hour pitch. So we've seen more of these guys, these position players, kind of come in and just lob these ludicrously slow pitches over the plate. And and really, you kind of hope that they get the treatment that um, I remember Orlando Hernandez uh, once did in the early 2000s. Um, he threw an EFIS two straight pitches to Alex Rodriguez, and A-Rod took the first one and was like, Huh. Okay. All right. This is the thing that he, that that he's going to do. And then uh, El Duque had the audacity to throw a second straight fist <laughs> to A Rod, who then promptly sent it into the atmosphere uh, <laughs> with a tape measure home run. Believe it, Yankee Stadium. Uh, although A Rod was playing for the Rangers, I believe at that time. And so, like, you'd like to see the these you know sort of little league type pitches just be met with extreme force from the batters going the other way, but. At the same time, if you can uh, throw them over the plate and sort of consistently make it a part of your repertoire, I guess it's fun. It's uh, it's definitely a um, change-up in more ways than one from mm. what you're used to seeing in baseball. And uh, I, I believe the Ephus was originally the domain of a guy named Rip Sewell, who was a pitcher from long ago. He actually used it to some effect uh, when he was a real pitcher and used it. Uh, But then threw one against Ted Williams in the 1946 All-Star Game, and Ted Williams crushed it. Uh, so yeah, that's the risk you run when you throw these efas pitches. But maybe Brock Holt will learn that the hard way the next <laughs> time he tries it.
0: I like I have this image like the Bugs Bunny like um you know swinging so hard he spins in a circle repeatedly kind of image like that you could <laughs> spin around and then hit it with your second swing on the same swing. Like I, I keep having that image in my head. I think that's I I like that from a pitcher. I think if you can hit both ends of the spectrum. Um, that really shows range, you know, you know, and you can really, you can fool a batter if they're not expecting it. That's the thing I want to see. I want to see a real pitcher do it because like El Duque, because like the position players, you go up there knowing that they can't throw as hard as, as a real pitcher. But if you're like Max Scherzer and you slip in a 35 mile an hour pitch, that's like, that would be, I want to see that. That would be amazing.
1: Yeah, and I would love to see that uh, too because we are seeing we are seeing like that wide variance in pitch miles per hour uh, like Star Gratterall on Saturday night as Brock Holt was throwing his 30 mi- uh, 31 or 30.4 30. mile per hour pitch. Uh, he struck out Shohei Otani with a 102 mile per hour fastball. Sure, so, uh, but no I want to see yeah. uh, I want to <laughs> see Gratterall use the 30 mile per hour and just kind of Yeah. Increase that difference between uh, high and low within the same pitcher.
0: Yeah, and in the same at bat. Yes, in the like same at that, bat, you got yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah what's the like? What's the most? If you could throw a, a pitch in the one hundreds, the nineties, the eighties, the seventies, the sixties, you know, all the way down to the thirties in the all same inning yeah like yeah what's the most number of like blocks of 10 mile per hour range that someone has hit in the same inning that's that that's the true mark of the uh change up ace i guess
0: yeah yeah we should dig into that uh StatCast data i would love that um thank you for that neil that will do it for this week's show we'll be back in your feed next tuesday if you like what you heard please subscribe and if you are subscribed please rate and review us on your podcast app it helps new people discover the show you can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is also in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Tony, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.